Well, when you are miserable, what do you think? What do you think about when you are miserable? Uh, when you are miserable, you feel miserable, but we don't always have to think the way that we feel. And what I'm really getting at is what do you think about God? What do you think about God when you are in misery? What are the first things that come into your mind when hard things happen to you? Uh, maybe it's the difficult circumstances, something happens to you. Maybe it's your own sin. And uh, maybe you wrestle and fight against sin and you find yourself stuck in sin, uh, fighting over and over again, giving in over and over again. And you just feel beaten down by your sin or you feel beaten down by uh, the things that are happening in life. And so what does that make you think about God? Uh, our lives are going to be full of trouble and trouble comes upon us like waves, it seems. Uh, maybe you feel this way, that when hard things happen, uh, the hard things happen, they, they, they happen, you, you get through them, you learn some lessons, uh, you might have a little bit of peace, a little bit of uh, comfort or ease, but then the next wave hits, the next wave comes. And for some of you, it might be the same thing. It might be a chronic issue that comes up over and over and over again in your life, or it could be different things. You have a financial problem, and you learn how to trust God through that, and then some health problem strikes. And then when that seems to get resolved, you have some issues in your family or some relationship struggles. And then that gets resolved and you find yourself in sin problems. And so it's this kind of thing that, that maybe happens to you. Wave after wave as you go through life, difficulties come around. So again, what do you think about when that happens? Are you the type of person who says, oh, no, here, here we go again? Or do you think, God, why are you doing this to me? Or do you think, God, why me? Why me? Why do I have to go through this? I see those other people, and they're not going through this. Why me? Or do you have peace? Do you have peace when you are in misery? Uh, when bad things happen, those painful things are painful. Uh, that's why it's called painful, is because it pains us. But is it possible that when we're going through painful things, we can actually have peace? And not the kind of peace that's like, you know the right Christian answer, uh, you know that when difficult things happen to you, you kind of get hit with the wave and you maybe start to panic a little bit. You start to get anxious or you start to get fearful or you get depressed for a few days. But the type of peace that right when that wave hits you, although it's painful, you don't have to sort of work yourself up to to have this feeling of peace, but you can say in those times that God is giving you peace. Uh, you guys, of course, you know the hymn, 
uh, that we can say, it is well with my soul when the sorrows like sea billows roll. And that we're not trying to manufacture this thing in us, but that it actually comes to us at that moment. And to have that kind of peace, uh, Richard Sibbs would tell us, is to understand that God can use our difficulties, what he calls bruising, for our good. To understand that God is using this bruising for our good. So it's not like the pain itself is good and it's not painful. Um, it is painful and that's why, that's why God uses that pain to cause us to stop and think about these things. If it was just uh, pleasant, then, it, then there would be nothing to, to think about. But it's a bruising, it's painful. But we can know and have this sense that when those things come, God is using this for our good. Uh, Sibs will say it this way. He says, God is doing a gracious, good work with you. God is doing a gracious, good work with you. So that's the question. Is that the first thing that comes to your mind or among the first things when you get hit with the wave of these difficult things in your life? I think the sinful tendency is to say, ah, not again. Why another one? Or why is God doing this to me? But as we grow in our faith, as we really believe what the scripture says, I think we can also say at the same time, God is going to do a gracious, good work. Whatever is about to happen, whatever I'm going to go through. And so to, to grow and, and coming to that place, we need to take to heart what uh, the Bible says about what it means to be a bruised reed and about what Jesus does for the bruised reed. So we're going to begin chapter one of this book, The Bruised Reed. Uh, Lord willing, maybe uh, a chapter each lesson. Uh, so we're going to just go through what, he, what Richard Sibbs says in chapter 1. So let's begin by reading from Isaiah, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, which is this passage that Sibbs is working off of, and he's uh, seeing as quoted in Matthew to refer to Jesus. Uh, but we can read uh, what Isaiah says in Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 1. God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faint, faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. So that's the passage, and I'm just going to go... Uh, page by page in the order that Sibs is going through this passage uh, in chapter 1. So first he, he points our attention to the word behold. 
the first word there is behold. That's not a word that we really use today. It's a more like a King James kind of word. Um, but we do say something like look, look. And when we say look, we're not always saying turn your head or turn your eyes to look at something. We mean stop and think about this. You're in an argument with someone and you say, just look, look, you're wrong, right? And so look means you need to stop and think about it. And so that's what behold means here. God wants his people to stop and think. This is the way Sibs says it. In page two, he says, he might well prefix the verse with behold to raise up our thoughts to the highest pitch of attention and admiration. So he's trying to raise up our thoughts to the highest attention and admiration. And he goes on, in time of temptation, apprehensive consciences look so much to the present trouble they are in that they need to be roused up to behold him in whom they may find rest for their distressed souls. So in times of temptation, when difficulties come, your tendency is to look down or to look in at yourself, to look at the troubles that you're in. And that's why he's saying God is telling you to behold, to look, be roused up to look to this servant, this Christ. And that's where you're going to find rest for your distressed soul. Uh, I wonder if for you, is your mind like, like a circuit board with your thoughts? Your thoughts just run through your mind like a circuit board or like uh, electricity when lightning strikes and you see like lightning striking water and wherever it finds water, that's where the electricity is going to go. And sometimes our minds can be like that. Wherever our minds can find something to worry about or be afraid of or be discouraged or sad about, that's just where your thoughts tend to go. Uh, and so to, be, to live as a Christian, if we're going to believe what the Bible is telling us to believe, then we have to fight this battle in our minds. So when you're anxious... You just can't let your mind go down this spiral and spiral of, well, if this happens, then this is going to happen, and that's going to happen, and then my life is going to be ruined. That's, that's what anxiety does to you. Or uh, when you are struggling with uh, depression or sadness, and your mind just gets stuck, and you're just constantly going over and over again, and the bad things that happen to you, the bad things in your life, the things about yourself that are no good. And that's where you have to take control of your thoughts. There was even, there was one time where I was going through a, a difficult circumstance and I, I thought that I was praying and I would start to pray. But as I prayed, I realized about 15 minutes later uh, I realized that my prayer was really just thinking anxious thoughts. And maybe you would say, that's fine, that's prayer. 
because uh, I was you know, supposedly taking those thoughts to God, but I wasn't really taking those thoughts to God. I just used prayer where I was like, God, please help me with this thing going on, and then my mind would just run away with all of those difficult things. And so even in prayer, I think that's why the Bible describes prayer as wrestling, wrestling with God. Uh, even in prayer, we have to control our thoughts and, and pray in an intentional way, in a conscious way, and not just let our minds just wander to whatever we want. So we need to behold. We need to think about our thoughts. So um, well, let me ask you this, because I think you, you might be able to come up with some answers. What are some verses that have to do with how we use our minds, that have to do with what we should think about? Can you think of any? Walt. Take every thought captive. Okay, good. That's in 2 Corinthians. Yes. As a man thinks, so he is. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> so... Uh, you're going to become the type of person, you're going to do the type of things based on how you think. Okay, what else? <coughs> right. Be anxious for nothing. And that's the one I, I thought about because if you look at the context, uh, in verse, verse 6 is the command, Philippians 4, verse 6, be anxious for nothing. But then in verse 8, he tells us what to think about. Um, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so Paul is telling us we have to have both. How can you not be anxious? Well, you have to make yourself think about things that are good and commendable and, and pure. Anything else? Anybody else have any? John? Um, Jesus said, uh, do not worry about tomorrow or the day when trouble Yeah. Yes. And I, and I always I love what he says right after that. Um, what, what statue, uh, what's, how will it add to your stature is basically what he's saying, uh, to, to worry about tomorrow. So basically, what good is it going to do? <laughs> what good is it going to do for you to worry about something you can't control tomorrow. Anything else? Tony? Um, it's along that vein as, uh, but it says uh, in Thessalonians 2, 10, and that's a, that's a thought. It's not just something you do. Yeah. You don't have to think about. Right. And he says, give thanks in all circumstances. So, so in this circumstance, how can I have these thoughts of thankfulness. Okay, well, uh, that's good. So you can see there are many verses in the Bible uh, clearly telling us what Sibs is trying to draw out. Behold, get your thoughts to focus on these good things. Now, what are we to behold here in Isaiah? Uh, well, here again, Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant. Behold my servant. And so Sibs points out here, 
God is calling Jesus, the Messiah, Christ. He is calling him his servant, his servant. Now, we don't have uh, servants in our day. That's not a politically correct term to use, right? Um, But the purpose of the the servants in, in those days is to serve the owner, to serve the employer, we could say. So to, to bring a benefit to the employer, or in our day, maybe we could think of like a butler or a maid, we'll think of a butler. What's the butler's job? The butler is to come at the call of his employer. So to do what is asked of the employer. Uh, so the, the boss, the man in, in his house, he, he asked the butler to bring him food. So he's going to bring the food and all this, whatever else. And so Isaiah is saying, the father chooses the son to be a servant, to be his servant, to do the service of the father. But it wasn't a self-serving service. He's not calling the servant to do for him uh, all, all the things that he wants done because He doesn't want to do it himself. But he's calling on the servant, his son, to work for the sake of the people of God. So for the sake of God's elect. And so Sibs says on page two, in this we may see the sweet love of God to us, that he counts the work of our salvation by Christ his greatest service. And in that, he will put his only beloved son to that service. So here we see the sweet love of God to us, that the greatest service the father calls his servant to do is to accomplish the work of salvation for his people. He puts his son to that service. So the father has a son, a a mission a job for his son. And so, again, what are we to behold? We are to behold that the son has been made a servant. That the father desires for the son to serve him by showing his love for us. So Sibs says, here we are to behold Christ John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But then he says, but when you behold Christ, you behold the Father, the Father's love, because the Father sent the Son so that we might be saved. It was the Father's love that was the cause of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So here's where uh, theology can become very practical. Uh, I love thinking about this uh, theological term or concept called the covenant of redemption. Um, Does anybody, can anybody try to explain that or define that? Do you know what I mean by that? I'm not sure if I've talked about it before? What is the covenant of redemption? John? Are you referring to the covenant that God made with Christ before 
Yes. Right. Right. Yeah, so we call this um, the covenant of redemption as the eternal covenant, one that was made in eternity. And this was between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, too, but mostly uh, Father and Son is what it, what it focuses on. And you really see this, you could see this any passage, really, that is about uh, election is related to how the Father and the Son had to agree that the, the people of God would be saved. Um, let's, uh, you can go to John 6, 39. Uh, turn there. This is just one of several uh, statements like this. John 6, 39, this is the will, uh, well, let's start in 38. Uh, For I have come down from heaven, Jesus is speaking, uh, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And so uh, we see here the use of those uh, words, all that he has given me. And he's talking about people. He's talking about uh, the church. So the father gave a people and he gave people to the son. So when did that happen? Well, it's, it's already happened uh, here in John 6. He has given them to me. Um, so it, it doesn't happen at the cross. Um, it, it must happen before, before the Son is sent. Uh, so, uh, and there, there are other verses we can look at about you know, God's d- decision before the foundation of the world. Uh, but So this tells us that the Father gave a people to the Son before the world was created. And the son accepted that mission. He accepted that service out of his own love for his people. And so back in Isaiah, uh, this, is the, this is the covenant of redemption, and this is what Sibs is saying you need to think about. This is what you need to set your mind on. Uh, you can... Focus on all the difficulties, but you need to behold the fact that the Son is the chosen one by God to accomplish the work of salvation from even before the world began. And the Father sent the Son to save us. So, uh, this is where we focus not on the circumstances around us, but on the reality. So this is the reality. This is what the Bible says about you as one of God's people. If you have faith in Christ, you can't think or you shouldn't think when these things happen in your life. 
what is God doing with, with me? Why is God doing this to me? But, but the reality that you interpret everything in life should be, God loves me in Christ. He has loved me from eternity. The Father and Son agreed and covenanted together from eternity to save me. I was given by the Father to the Son. The Son has accomplished everything for my salvation. So how could I doubt the love of God and the grace of Christ for me? So then, how does uh, Christ pursue his calling? Uh, Sibs goes on to say, uh, what is this mission? How does it get worked out? Um, and so this is where we get to the bruised reed. Um, he quotes verse 2, first of all, uh, the servant Jesus, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Uh, so remember, a long time ago we talked about this. The, the picture here is of a military general, and the military general isn't walking down the street barking out orders and telling everybody to get in line and threatening them and making everybody fear him. Um, so he's not the one who says it's better to be feared than loved because if, you, if people fear you, they'll, they'll listen to you and they'll obey you. But that's not what Jesus is like. Jesus is the opposite. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. Instead, he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. So how does he pursue this mission of being a servant? Well, he does it quietly. He does it gently. And he does this because he has come to save bruised reeds. So then we get to verse 3 again. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And so Sibs says this, they are not trees, but reeds. Not trees, but reeds. And not whole, meaning they're not healthy, but bruised reeds. Jesus doesn't come to save trees. He saves reeds. And not healthy, but bruised reeds. And so then he says, the church is compared to weak things. The church is compared to weak things. 1 Corinthians 1 says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. It seems like we always have the temptation ourselves and we see other people who profess to be Christians there's always the temptation to appear strong and for the church to appear strong. There are a lot of examples I could have given, but I just thought of one, one example of how people seem to get really excited when someone famous professes to become a Christian. Don't you think that's interesting? Like, why is it that Kanye professes to be a believer and the whole Christian world is just like, wow, look at this great revival God is going to do through Kanye or whatever he's called now. Um, 
why do we think that Christianity is going to be great because some famous person claims to be a Christian? Or it happens with athletes, uh, NFL players, and they just get all the endorsements and they get all the conference invitations. So this is how it works. This is how the Christian world works. And I think it's really just this desire that in the eyes of the world, we not be seen as weak. We, we always kind of get made fun of. We always get pushed to the side. And a lot of people don't like that. And so uh, Sibs is reminding us, the church is compared to weak things. We're not trees. And it's okay that the world doesn't see us as trees. We are bruised reeds. Well, next, uh, he goes on to say, to talk about what it means to be bruised. What do we mean by the bruised reed? So he says, the bottom of page three, the bruised reed is a man that for the most part is in some misery, and by misery he is brought to see sin as the cause of it. So, being in misery, and then he adds that by this misery, he sees sin as the cause of it. Um, sin is obviously not always the direct cause of the misery that we have, but uh, we can say that all suffering ultimately is a result of sin. Uh, sickness and death, you know, it's not like you're, you have this because you sinned directly, but we can say that Sin is the ultimate cause. We're living in this fallen world. And so what he's trying to get us to see is that this misery of this bruising is to make us recognize that we can't fix this problem. We can't fix this problem. Because of this fallen world that we live in, you can't make it better. You can't make it right. And so he says that's what it means to be bruised. Um, he says, whatever pretenses sin makes, they come to an end when we are bruised and broken. And so God wants us to come to this point of realizing, I can't fix this. I can't help this problem. And that's the point where Jesus comes to help us. So then the, the last part of this chapter, he talks about the good effects of bruising. The good effects of bruising. Why do we get bruised? And the first thing he says is that we get bruised before conversion. So he's going to talk about before conversion and then after. So before conversion, he says, God usually empties us of God empties such of themselves and makes them nothing before he will use them in any great services. And then he says, It is a very hard thing to bring a dull and evasive heart to cry with feeling for mercy. Our hearts, like criminals, until they are beaten from all evasions, never cry for the mercy of the judge. Again, this bruising makes us set a high price upon Christ. The gospel becomes the gospel indeed, and the fig leaves of morality do us no good. 
And then he says, What makes many so cold and barren, but that bruising for sin never endeared God's grace to them? Okay, so he's saying, uh, using that imagery of the judge, um, you're like, you're getting pinned down. And maybe you felt this way when you were not a Christian. You're like getting pinned down with guilt of your sin and conviction of your sin. And you try all kinds of ways to justify yourself and to make things right. And uh, so he says it's like the criminal trying to get out of his sentence. And he'll find all kinds of excuses. But until he finally realizes he can't get away from this penalty, that's when he cries out for mercy. And so he's saying this is what God needs to do for us before conversion. What makes many so cold except that bruising for sin never endeared God's grace to them? And so there's a danger here. Uh, The danger here is that, um, well, the danger is that you don't see yourself as a bruised reed. And I'm thinking specifically about salvation and coming to Christ. So what if you grew up in church, you know all the right doctrine, uh, you know how to answer the questions, and let's say you, yeah, you come to the pastor, one, one of the pastors, and you can answer every question right. You know how salvation works, you can explain it all. You can do all the right things. You can look like you're obeying God, but you can still be without grace. So how is that possible? It's because you've never been a bruised reed. You've never had that heart work inside of you that you're like the criminal being pinned down and you're crying for mercy. And the hard thing is you can, you can say it. You can say, oh yeah, I knew that I was guilty of my sin and I, and I knew that, that I needed the mercy of God. And you can make it sound good to everybody else and to the pastor, but it could still not really have happened in your life. And that's what Sibs is trying to say is the danger. Jesus saves bruised reeds. And really, only you really know in your heart if when coming to Christ, you've had this work in your heart to show you that you are not a tree. You're a reed and you're not healthy. You're a bruised reed and you need the grace of God. And so those who are forgiven much, love much. They love Christ because they know how sinful they are. So that's before conversion. And then he says, after conversion, after conversion, we need bruising so that reeds may know themselves to be reeds and not oaks. So if you buy the book, that's on page five, and you should underline that one and star that one. That's like, I think it's the best line in the book. After conversion, you need bruising so that reeds may know themselves to be reeds 
not oaks. And I'm sure if you're a Christian, you've had that in your life. You start to think you're something, right? You start to think you're doing pretty well. Ah, yeah, I got some sins uh, dealt with, and I'm living a pretty holy life. I'm, I'm being a pretty good guy or, or good woman. Things are going well in my life. And you start to think highly of yourself. And you know, and you know that God often sends these trials. God sends sometimes that, that discipline. And you realize that's what it was. That was the problem. I started to think that I was this oak of a Christian. I forgot that I'm a bruised reed. Romans 12.3 says, Let a man not think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober, sober judgment. And so that's part of what the bruising does for us. The bruising helps us to think of ourselves soberly. We're not all that we think that we are. Don't believe the hype. Don't believe the hype that you think about yourself. Think soberly about yourself as a bruised reed. And so that's the, the lesson of chapter one. Uh, what kind of person are you? You like to be a strong person? Do you like to have it all together? Or do you see yourself as a bruised reed? It's the bruised reed that Jesus comes for and he does not break. So let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your mercy, your grace in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the, the difficult rods that you send, the waves uh, that crash us and humble us. And although we do not uh, wish for more pain in our lives, we can give you thanks uh, that you do use this bruising in our lives for our good, to remind us that we are reeds and not oaks. And we thank you for your continued grace and help in Jesus Christ, and that we do not turn away from you, we do not fall away, but because we are given by the Father to the Son, the Son does not let us go. And so, God, we pray that uh, you would continue to work this in our hearts, that it would be real for us and not just words that we speak and, and agree with. We pray that you would help us to set our minds on things above, on Jesus Christ as the servant sent for our salvation. And Lord, we thank you for opportunities again to gather together today and be together as your people and to hear the gospel. We pray that you would encourage us and refresh us and give us life anew as we hear the gospel preached to us. Help our hearts to be eager to hear, to be humbled before you, that we might receive uh, this good news. 
And so we pray these things through Jesus Christ. Amen.